0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I hope that you guys are being as encouraged by this series as I am. I, it's, I really have just been encouraged, you know, obviously, hopefully not just by my own words, but by the, the things that we've been exploring, the, the things that just taking time to remember what scripture tells us really are the, the treasures of the Christian fanatic. And that's what we've been discussing. And just very, very quickly, you know, by Christian fanatic, we really just mean the person who's all in for Christ, the, the person who's devoted to Jesus, the person who's decided that Jesus is the most important thing, that Jesus is their priority in life. That, that Jesus is their first love and their best love, and that everything else is secondary. And that doesn't mean we always feel that way, but there's that sort of decision. That this, and it doesn't even mean we always are that way, <laughs> but there's sort of this, this decision as a Christian fanatic, I'm gonna, as we keep saying, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. And we've been looking at the treasures, 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic, and I want to remind you the point of these treasures is not that these are rewards for being committed. It's not like God says, oh, you've given everything to me, so as a reward, as an incentive, as a salary, as a pay, as a bonus, here's something you get. That's not how this works. To to take you all the way back to the beginning, we read a psalm which says that uh, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. And I reminded you that there's really a, a simple cause and effect there, that if you dwell in the land that is safe then you will enjoy safe pasture. If you dwell in the land that is not safe, you will not enjoy safe pasture. So you're not being punished for dwelling in the wrong land, and you're not even being rewarded for dwelling in the right land. It's just that that's where it is. So these 10 treasures of the Christian fanatic, what we're looking at is things that are only found in Christ or found most purely in Christ or found best in Christ. And so by putting all our eggs in that basket, it just so happens that in that basket is where these treasures reside. And so we've looked at three of them so far. And the first one we looked at was a purpose of delight. Just the idea that we do have meaning. We have purpose. We were created for something. We all desire purpose. And to find out that our purpose is to enjoy God, that God created us for our mutual pleasure. He takes pleasure in us. We take pleasure in him, right? That that's what he created us for. That's an amazing thing to find out. And the Christian fanatic has the benefit of knowing that and seeking that in everything that happens in his life. Second thing we talked about was an identity of substance. We so desire to know who we are, right? This is very closely tied with purpose, right? Often our purpose and our identity do flow together. But we just want to know, who am I, right? Am I just a, a weird creature with no substance? Well, part of the, what the Christian fanatic gains is that recognition that we do have an identity of substance, that we are so much more than the mess of feelings and desires and thoughts and behaviors and the way we present ourselves that there's something much more substantial than that. And we're told in Scripture that for the believer, the old is gone. The old nature, which was just a mess of presentations, is gone, and the new has come. We've become something else, something amazing and beautiful. The righteousness of God, says Scripture. So we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about a stability of conviction. We live in a world where... Uh, everything there's there's so much happening and and the 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 ideas change you know and sometimes when you're younger you sort of assume that the way things are now is the way they've always been or at least it's a minor correction but now we're kind of hit the right place but as you get older and older and older you begin to realize that it goes up and down and back and forth all the time and what what the the intellectual fads and fashions of one day are, are dispensed with pretty quickly the next And to be able to ride that out, to be able to know no matter what's thrown at you, what teachings you hear, what gurus are given you, to know that you have a stability that you can stand on. And for the Christian fanatic, that stability comes from a recognition that Scripture has authority in our lives. Scripture has authority in our lives. It has authority to tell us what to do and and where to go and and how to see the world. And when you accept that authority, and it is kind of fanatical these days to say, I'm going to allow Scripture to have that authority even when it's in disagreement with other things in my life. To to have that gives you a real stability of conviction. Not an arrogance, as we talked about, not a wisdom in your own eyes, as we stressed the distinction with, but a confidence that something higher than yourself, which transcends our own cultural blinders and biases, can still pave the way, can still point the direction. So those are the three treasures we've seen so far. And it's really cool. Purpose, identity, and stability are huge things. The fourth one that we're going to talk about tonight, so I've been kind of teasing you, giving you the first word and then an ellipsis and then bringing in the second one. The fourth one only makes sense altogether, so I won't just start with with, with it uh, by itself. The fourth one is a character of nobility. I don't know if we would necessarily put it that way, but we all want to be noble. We all want to have noble characters. Just very simply put, we all have a desire to be better people. (laughs) And I think this is just true. In fact, in my experience, the only people who even deny that that's true, for the most part, the only people who claim that they don't care about being better people are the people who've just become so disappointed and disillusioned that they've given up, that they claim they don't care because they have no hope of it ever happening. But we all want to be better people, and if nothing else, we all want to be seen as people of nobility, yes? We want people to say, that is a good person that person is decent that person is honest that person is trustworthy and reliable that person is understands justice and fairness that person is loving that person is kind that person is patient we we want to be seen that way but i think at the heart of it we want that to be true also we want to be better people question is how do you do that how does that happen And how is that a treasure? Because that sounds like something we just need to do. Well, Let's talk about that. You know, it's interesting. Benjamin Franklin is, uh, with good reason, one of our most admired founding fathers. At the time that he was alive, this is not true of all of our founding fathers, at the time he was alive, he was admired worldwide. There's actually a statue, several prominent statues in France of Benjamin Franklin because he was that kind of world hero in his own day. How many people get to be that? Not very many. He was just, and there's a lot of things. He was very amazing. He was an incredible, brilliant mind and an incredible creative mind. And he created so many things. He invented so many things. And he created, including his part, largely in the creation of our country. And he was seen as someone with a lot of wisdom. So many things. In fact, he's probably the number one misattributed person as the bible right people say well the bible says this and i say actually that was ben franklin you know, god helps those who help themselves not in the bible it's in something called poor richard's almanac which is completely written by benjamin franklin hebrews to write every month he would put out a set of proverbs wise sayings completely created by him and he was seen for having this wisdom and having this certain kind of in some ways this intelligence and character that was to be admired He wrote an autobiography, and uh, when you read his autobiography, you discover that he also wanted to be a better person. And in his autobiography, he lays out this process for how he's going to become a better person. It's kind of interesting, even you could say that he was ahead of his time, he kind of gamified the whole process of becoming a better person. What he does is he identifies 13 things that he's not good at, he says. 13 virtues that he really wants to improve in himself. And he picked 13 specifically because 13 times four is 52. So this could be broken up throughout the year. And his goal was going to be that for one week, he would focus on the first of this 13. And then in the second week, he would focus on the second one and third week, the third one and so on. And he'd repeat that four times throughout the course of the year. And at the end of the year, he would measure and evaluate how much better he had gotten in all these things. And there's something to be admired about his desire. And there's something even to be admired about is his methodology, right? He, he tells people about it. There's some accountability. There's some attempt. There's some evaluation. He's going to become these things. But when I read this autobiography, I had to chuckle because of all the things that Benjamin Franklin is known for, of all the things that he's admired for, there's two things in his list of 13. The very first thing in his first one in his list of 13 is temperance. That means he's not going to drink as much. And the fourth or fifth thing in his list of 13 is chastity, which means he's not going to carouse and sleep around. And what's fascinating is Benjamin Franklin is known almost as much for drinking and sleeping around as he is for his wisdom. <laughs> and even he acknowledges at the end of his autobiography that he's not sure it worked, that he's not sure this, this approach, he wants to say it could be effective, maybe he just hasn't given it long enough but he's not really sure that this approach is working. He talks about how difficult he finds it. And he particularly mentions temperance and chastity being especially difficult. Now, this is a guy who's saying that in one week he can't hold on to chastity. <laughs> just a week, Benjamin Franklin, just a week. I think it's, it's telling and it's interesting. Somebody with so much discipline, really, So much wisdom, so much ability, even the desire to become a better person, even the recognition of his own flaws. And his conclusion at the end of the book about his life is, I don't know if it can be done. Don't know if I can become the character of nobility I desire to become. And I mentioned Benjamin Franklin because we're going to look at two passages today in scripture. And and I'm just going to say this. Each of these passages, I think, paint a picture of what a character of nobility would look like. Each of these paint a picture of the kind of person that you probably want to be. I suspect you do. I hope so, but I also suspect so. They certainly paint a picture of the kind of person I want to be. But I also want to tell you this, because this may begin to feel burdensome. You may begin to feel like Benjamin Franklin, a little bit worn out by these lists, okay? So I want to assure you that as we look at these lists, when we get to the end of this today, what I want you to see is there is a surprise waiting. There is a treasure hidden in these lists. There is a beautiful and very possibly completely surprising point that ends up being made in the scripture that I want you to see. So hang with me. You, some of you have been around my teachings long enough to know that I like to present the dilemma and the conflict before I present the solution. So as you're feeling the conflict and the tension, just hang in there. I'm going to start with 2 Peter. The truth is that both Paul and Peter, one of, one of these lists comes from Paul. One of them comes from Peter. We're going to start with Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says this. He says, for this very reason. Now, rest assured, we will go back and see what this very reason is. We're going to skip that for now. But for some reason, he's about to say something. We'll come back to that. For now, because I want to paint the dilemma before I paint the solution, I want you to just focus on the text we have in front of us. And this is what he says. For this very reason, whatever the reason is, make every effort, give all diligence, sort of the literal rendering here. It should be something that takes effort. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Now, first, we can look at the list and say, that's who I'd like to be, right? We want to be good. We want to be knowledgeable. We want to have self-discipline and self-control. We want to have perseverance. We want to be able to press on. We want to be godly. We'll talk about what that even means, but it sounds like a good thing. We want to have mutual affection. We want to love each other. And then we want to just be people that are known as people of love. It's, it, is, it is a list of the kind of character we want to have. And Peter starts or appears to say here, This is going to take work and you're going to add all these things. And then he says this, if you possess these qualities in increasing, increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this speaks very much to our Western sensibilities. We love to be efficient and productive. And Peter says, if you do this, if you have these qualities, they will make you effective and productive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And these are good things. We should want these things. And it's good that we want to be effective and productive, right? We want to not only be Christians and sort of internally, but it should affect us and we should change the world and it should be affecting other people and we should be productive in these things. And here Peter says it's simple. If you want to be effective and productive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, all you have to do is add this amazing list and then keep it in increasing measure not even good enough just to have these things. They have to constantly be getting better. So I worked for about 11 years for Apple, for the Apple store. And I really liked working there. It was, it, was, it was really good. But there's one thing they did that a lot of companies do, which at a certain point was one of the most discouraging things I've ever encountered in my life. And it was the, the way they did the reviews. So the way they do the reviews is you, you either are Beneath expectations, you did not meet expectations, you met expectations, or you exceeded expectations. And a lot of companies review this way. And it's a way of saying, here's kind of what we expect from you now. Did you fall under that? Did you meet that? Or were you over that? And that sounds okay. And, and, and that's good. We all want to exceed expectations. And then you got pay raises accordingly. Percentage was in there. It all seems fine. seems well and good. It's fine to challenge people to exceed expectations. But... One year after having met four consecutive quarters where I exceeded expectations, one of my managers said one of the most discouraging things to me, and I don't think they meant it to be, but this is what they said to me. They said, now you've exceeded expectations for the last four quarters. You know what that means. And I said, what? They said, well, it means our expectations are now higher. (laughs) So every time you exceed expectations, it's going to get harder because you're going to have to do better. And I just realized at that moment, I was like, what a rat race. (laughs) What an incredible, defeating moment I am now experiencing to realize no matter how good I get, it will never, ever be enough. And I get it. They're wanting to challenge me, right? They don't want me to rest on my laurels. But you have to admit, if that's the goal, at some point, everybody's going to hit a point where they can no longer do it. (laughs) But isn't that what Peter's saying? It feels like it, right? He's like, do all these things. Add all these things to your already complicated life and make sure that you add them in increasing measure and then you won't be ineffective and unproductive. And so we look at our lives and we're like, well, I'm not effective and productive. Well, now I know why, because I can't do this. Let's look at the list a little bit. Let's understand what this list says. It won't make you feel better yet. Like I say, hang in there. But let's look at the list. Let's at least understand what it says here. And then maybe we can figure out how this is supposed to happen. Because it's unlikely that Peter, of all people, Peter, who probably failed more than any, publicly more than any other apostle in the Gospels, that Peter would say to us, do this and do it perfectly, or you will be ineffective and unproductive. That can't be where he's going. But let's go back and look at what he says. For this very reason, again, that's really important, but we're going to skip that for now. Make every effort. Okay, well, this is something that takes that effort. We can all see that. It's going to take diligence. It's going to take concentration. And then he says to add. I really like this. I, you know, as we read the list of this, he's talking about adding to your faith goodness, to your goodness knowledge. It's like you're, you're adding things as you go, right? And you, Sometimes people think of it as rungs on a ladder, and you could kind of see it that way. You start with faith you move up to goodness. But that is actually not what he's saying here, because when he's adding things, you're not moving on from something, right? Have you ever played that game? It's a memory game where you're like, my Aunt Betty went to the store and she bought a banana. And then the next person has to add to that. They're like, my Aunt Betty went to the store, she bought a banana and a bobcat. I'm doing all bees for whatever reason. And the next person is like, I know, but we're doing bees. My Aunt Betty went to the store and she bought a banana and a bobcat and bisquick. And and the thing is, you don't get to leave one behind. That would be easy. (laughs) You have to add them. It gets more complicated as you go. And that is actually what he's saying. In fact, the word, the literal phrase here of Ad is lead hand in hand. So it's like this picture. It's like faith. You start with faith, whatever that is. He says, you have faith. Now faith reaches out its hand and grabs goodness to lead it with it. Says, okay, now you come with. And now faith and goodness are walking along. And then goodness reaches back and grabs knowledge and says, okay, now you come with. So there is a little bit of an order, right? There is a progression. You need faith to grab goodness. Goodness can grab knowledge. Knowledge can grab self-control and so on. But you don't get to drop any of them. (laughs) So let's walk through what these are. Let's see if we can just really get in our minds what these words even mean because they're not necessarily words we would use all the time. So first he says faith. Add to your faith. So you start with faith. He says he says faith. Now, what I want to stress is that the word faith in scripture is not the same word that we use when we use faith in contemporary usage. In contemporary usage, faith just means belief, right? It means believing something. So I can have faith in a God, you can have faith in no God, and they're both called faith. That's fine for us to use words that way. I'm not quibbling with the way we use words. That's how we use that word. But it's important to understand that's not how Peter or Paul used that word. When they use the word faith in scripture, faith always means faith is always connected to truth. You can't have faith in something false. When you have faith in something false in scripture, it's called deception, literally. The opposite of faith in scripture is deception. So from the scriptural perspective, you can have faith in God and you can have the deception. There is no God. You don't have faith in no God. That's just because they use the word differently. Faith is specifically meaning believing in something true. It's used a couple of different ways which are connected to this idea, too. The other way faith is often used is trusting in somebody trustworthy, right? So you can have faith. You can trust in somebody who's trustworthy. Again, if you trust in somebody who's untrustworthy, they wouldn't call that faith. They would call that unfortunate. And finally, Paul uses it frequently as a shorthand to mean the teachings that are true. So Paul would say you can have faith in the faith right? You can believe in the teachings that are true. But in all these cases, faith means believing what's true, trusting in God. So that's where this starts. It's, it's to add to your faith this, this conviction that God is right. And then it says, add to your faith goodness. So faith reaches back and grabs goodness. Well, what is goodness? Goodness is very similar to what we would mean in our culture. It's sort of, but think of it as sort of morality. It's a, it's a moral goodness, right? It's, it's knowing what's right and wrong and doing the right thing. We would call someone who is not racist, good. We would call someone who is, you know, kind to people, good. We would call somebody who who does the right thing at the right time, good. And then it says, goodness reaches back and grabs knowledge. Knowledge is often used in scripture to mean an intimate knowledge of God. Because of what we're going to read in a little bit before this, I'm not sure that's what Peter means here, although it's possible. I think, though, that what Peter means here is truth, knowledge of truth. Right. So, you know, wisdom, kind of like Benjamin Franklin, right? Wisdom, knowing things and knowing they're true, that you somehow add that to your goodness. And then knowledge reaches back and grabs self-control, self-control in one sense. I'm going to show you how it's different in another. But for now, in one sense, it's very similar to the way you probably think of it. It means not being ruled by the desires that you have, not having to do everything you want to do, but having the ability to not do something that you feel like you want to do. That's how we often think of self-control. That is part of what it means here. Self-control then reaches back and grabs perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to keep doing all these things, <laughs> even when things get difficult, right? Perseverance reaches back and grabs godliness. Godliness in scripture doesn't mean acting like God. It, it, it can, but that's kind of a shorthand. What it really means is being aware that God is watching over you. Now, that can be both positive and scary, right? <laughs> like knowing that you're, when you're a child... And you're doing something wrong, knowing that your parents watching you is kind of scary when you're a child and you're doing something you're proud of, knowing your parents watching you feels good. This is the same with godliness in scripture. It's this idea of knowing that God is there and he's watching and he's part of it. So that's added to perseverance. And then you reach back and you grab mutual affection. Mutual affection is an interesting word or set of words. The reason it's mutual affection and that's such an awkward translation is because we don't have a word for it in the English. Sometimes it's described as brotherly love. The literal word here, by the way, is Philadelphia, which is not just a city. <laughs> That's literally the city of brotherly love, right? But what it means is this. It means communal love. It means sort of the, the, the bond that you have with people you think of as family, the bond that you have with people who are in a community that you're committed to. It, it's this idea of commitment and loyalty and, and kind of a tribal love for each other This kind of kinship that you all have. You all share something in common. There's an affection. You know, the fact that you, in a family, you bear with your relatives you wouldn't bear with if they weren't your relatives. In a church, you might bear with people you wouldn't bear with if they weren't in your church. Let's be honest. There's a a mutual kinship. A real affection, though. Not just a toleration. And then... Mutual affection reaches back and grabs love. And love is the ability to look out for the interests of people whose interests don't align with yours. So this is loving people who aren't in your tribe. Loving people who aren't, I mean, in your tribe too, but not just in your tribe. Loving people who aren't just in your community. This is reaching out to people who aren't family and treating them like family. So this is the stream. All you have to do is do all those things better and better every moment, and you'll be great. And I don't know about you, but that's the most depressing thing I've ever read in scripture. <laughs> because I can't. Because I've tried. Because what happens when that chain is broken? I mean, really, I start with faith. I get the goodness. I get the knowledge. And then self-control comes in and goes, no, nah, I'm not coming with you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to join hands. I'm staying back here. Do I have to start over? How can all of these be increasing in measure if I can't even get them all lined up in the first place? And to be perfectly honest, I find it hard to get them all lined up in the first place. I mean, love is great, but on a lot of days, I struggle with mutual affection. How am I ever going to love people that don't love me if I can't even love people that love me? I just fall short so often, so frequently. And then to have Peter, and I rely on the grace of God. And so now to have Peter tell me, if you want to be effective and productive, you got to make every effort to get all these ducks lined up in a row. And then you got to march forward and you guys got to keep going forward so that every moment you're getting better and better and better in increasing measure all the time. And I just want to throw up my hands. And as soon as I throw up my hands, I'm not holding anymore. right? So I just want to throw up my hands and say, forget that. But this is the Benjamin Franklin approach, isn't it? At least it sounds like it so far. I can see why he kind of got discouraged about it. Because I would too. But I want to start. Before we look at the context around this verse, which will help quite a bit, by the way. <laughs> this is, you'll, you've, you've probably discovered over time that one of the ways I create dilemma in a teaching is by not letting you read the rest of the context. Because scripture actually helps itself quite a bit if you're willing to read the context. (laughs) But before we look at the rest of the context, which is very important, I think we can discover a nugget just right from what we've read. I think we can notice something that the reason we always fail is because right off the bat, we don't do what this says. You know why? Because when we think about becoming a better person and we think about joining hands, we start with something that's in the middle of this list, self-control. We think where this always starts is with willpower, don't we? We think where this starts is with self-control. It's with saying, I'm going to do this better. But isn't it interesting that in this list, self-control is only added to something. It it isn't the front of the line. You cannot lead this procession with self-control. And I think the fact that we tried to lead this procession with self-control is part of the reason it always falls apart. But self-control is not at the front of the list. It's fascinating if you actually go back, let's go back. I told you what all these words mean. Now let me put them in scriptural context a second. And you'll actually see that the chain makes sense. The way I laid them out, it just kind of randomly put together. But the chain actually makes sense if you see these the way that scripture talks about them. So it all starts with faith. It starts with trusting in God. And do you see how right away that is the antithesis of self-control? In other words, when you want to get better, you have two choices. You could say, I'm going to count on myself to get better. I'm going to count on God to get me better. They don't, they're not, that's not compatible ideas. It's either one or the other. (laughs) If you start with self-control, you've already not only not started with faith, but you have eliminated faith. By starting with faith, it says you start by trusting that God knows what he's doing. By counting on him to make this work. By believing that he can make you better. And scripture is full with promises that salvation includes this promise from God, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He is the one who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it starts with faith, which is not the same as starting with self-control. It's not willpower. In fact, it's a little bit of a surrender of will, isn't it? It's saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't know how to do this. I'm going to let you do this. Now, this is perfect because faith reaches back and grabs goodness, which we know is morality. But you know what scripture tells us about morality? It tells us that we have no clue what morality is. This is a hard message for our contemporary culture. We like to think that we figured it all out. We like to think that we know that we have these ethical systems, these moral standards. We know what's right and wrong. Scripture tells us you don't know what's right and wrong. You're terrible at it. But you know who does know what's right and wrong? God. You know what the definition of goodness is? It's what God says is good. In fact, in scripture, the word morality doesn't exist, not in the way we use it. Because in scripture, the idea of good and evil always comes back to what God says is good is good and what God says is not isn't. And it's that simple. So you can see how goodness needs to be led by faith. Because if it's not led by faith, if you try to start with goodness, then you're just deciding for yourself what's right and wrong. So it starts with faith. You grab, faith says, we're going to trust God. We're going to surrender to God. So morality is going to come with me because we're going to trust what God says about what's right. And so goodness comes along with faith. And now goodness is in line. And goodness reaches back to knowledge because you know what happens when you trust God and then he says, do this and you believe him and you do it. Well, you start by not knowing really what's right and wrong, but you're trusting God for it. But guess what? As you do what's right and wrong and it works out, you go, oh, now I know. (laughs) Now I know. Now I know God better, and I know morality better, and I know me better. Knowledge. But knowledge has to grab on to goodness. You can't start with knowledge and then create goodness. It's fascinating. In fact, my wife turned me on to a book. It's not written by a believer at all, and I don't know that I agree with everything he's saying, but he's discussing the fact that psychologists today are coming around to the thinking that we are not moral reasoning creatures. We think that we reason all our morality out. That we figure out what's right and wrong but he says when you actually study the brain what you discover is people make moral decisions in an instant and then because they see the emotional center light up first and then they come up with reasoning to justify their emotional feeling (laughs) which is a little scary (laughs) but it's what scripture says we do see according to scripture if we trust god then that intuition that moral intuition will be in line with god And then the knowledge will follow along. Then we'll be able to understand, oh, this is why God says it's good. But it doesn't work the other way around. We want to understand why it's good before we trust God that it's good. The knowledge, now knowledge reaches back and grabs self-control. Only at this point, only after we've submitted to God, believed him about what's good, and then learned the knowledge of what's good, only then does self-control come along. And guess what? Remember two weeks ago when we talked about an identity of substance and we talked about the fact that one of the benefits is when you believe that you've been made holy, then your life tends to live out in more holy ways because a man who thinks he's a pig lives like a pig, but a man who thinks he's a man lives like a man. Uh, A man who believes he's been made holy lives in holy ways. A man who believes he's a sinner will continue to sin no matter how much he struggles with it. Well, this is part of that knowledge. If you believe what God says about what's holy and right, and you believe what God says about you, then you begin to recognize self-control is a misnomer. It's just a word, but it happens to be incorrect. It's not about controlling ourselves. It's about controlling our flesh, which is not ourselves. But if we start with self-control, we are immediately feeding into the deception that what I do in the flesh defines who I am. But if we start with faith to goodness to knowledge, then when we reach back for self-control, what we see is, oh, I don't have to do what my desires tell me to do. It's not about fighting what I think I have to do. It's about recognizing, oh, that's just my flesh. That's not even that big a deal. Now self-control makes more sense. And now self-control reaches back to perseverance because you can't persevere in something you've never started, correct? (laughs) You can't start with perseverance. Because if you start with perseverance, all you can persevere in doing is whatever you were doing before you started. But now that you have faith, and that's leading to your understanding of goodness and a greater knowledge of that, and now you're understanding how then you don't have to follow your desires. Now when difficulties happen as these are walking along the road hand in hand, perseverance is just the ability to keep trusting God. No matter how things look. And as you keep trusting God, you know what happens? As you keep trusting God, you see God come through. And it becomes more and more a conscious habit of you to recognize that God is with you. And that's perseverance reaching back and grabbing godliness. And then as you begin to recognize God is with you and you're learning more and more about who God is and you're, you're with other people who are also persevering in godliness, you begin to develop a bond around this devotion that you all have to God. And mutual affection begins to grow. You also begin to understand that what's important to God is important to you. And so the people he loves are the people you love. And so mutual affection begins to grow. But then as mutual affection begins to grow, it suddenly starts to become obvious to you that God doesn't only love the people in this room. He seems to love those guys out there too. And suddenly you begin to wonder what it would be like if you looked out for people whose interests weren't your own and you begin to love. And now they're all in a chain because it started with faith. And now the chain walks forward and as the chain walks forward, guess what? They're all moving forward. They're all increasing in measure. Now you can still break the chain. You can still forget what it's about and you can start trying to do self-control by itself or you can start deciding that mutual affirmation isn't that important. I mean, mutual affection isn't that important. Whatever. You can break the chain. But at this point, you don't have to go back and figure out how to increase and get better in all of those again. You just go back to what? Faith. Trust in God. This is not an element in Benjamin Franklin's gamified list you'll find anywhere. And he was a man of faith to a degree. He was a peculiar man of faith. He had interesting ideas. But he did believe there was a God. He believed in sovereignty. He talks about that. In fact, at one point when he says, I can't seem to get better, he kind of throws himself at the mercy of the sovereign and says, my only hope is that, that, that what is the word he uses? Not destiny. Can't think of the word, but it's the idea of Sovereignty. The only hope is that something sovereign will make me better because I'm having a hard time with it. And, and so we do see, even just from this text, that the idea is not willpower. The idea is not to make it happen. The idea is to trust God. And, and think about what this means. This goes back to the Christian fanatic. So why is the character of nobility a treasure of the Christian fanatic? Not only is it a treasure of the Christian fanatic... It's a necessary element that you be a Christian fanatic if you really want to grow a character of nobility. Why? Because it starts with saying, everything I am, all my improvements, all my eggs have to go in God's basket. It starts with submission. It starts with trust. It starts with saying, Jesus is everything. If he is, and I believe that, then one of the treasures of that is we will become not characters... But you may be characters and that's okay too. But we will become people with character of nobility. Now, just to show you, I haven't tortured this passage. Now let's go back and read the context because you will be amazed how clear it is now. It says this, Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, Peter says this about God. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Just stop there. Compare that to make every effort to add. It felt like make every effort to add said that it was up to us to have a godly life, to make it happen. But Peter starts by saying his divine power, his divine power, not our self-control, not our willpower. Do you know willpower is not a word in scripture anywhere? It doesn't exist. I'm not even sure the will is something that scripture even acknowledges exists. We'll leave that for another day. It says his divine power, his power has given us most of what we need. It says everything, everything we need for what? For a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now here, the word knowledge does mean intimate knowledge of God, which is why I don't think it's what Peter means later, but it could be. Here he says, God's power has given us everything we need through our intimacy with him. As we become more intimate with him, we discover everything we need for a godly life. And why do we discover everything we need through a godly life as we're intimate with him? Because of his glory and his goodness. You have to start with faith for goodness because it's his goodness and his glory. It's his power and his love. Through these, through what? His glory and goodness. Through his power and love, or what we've often just called grace. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Peter is trying to be as accurate and effusive as he can be. They're not just promises. They're not just precious promises. They're very great. They're not even just great. They're very great and precious promises. As we get to know him, we recognize he has made us promises, promises of our holiness, promises of our sanctification, promises of our salvation, Why does he make those promises? Because of the effort you make? No, because of his glory and goodness. And because of his glory and goodness, he has opened himself up to us. And because he's opened himself up to us, as we get to know him, his divine power gives us everything we need for godly life. So that through them, all of this, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So what makes that passage we just looked at possible? Not you, not your goodness, not your self-control, not your will, not your strength, not even your devotion, but God's. God's goodness, God's glory, God's intimacy, God's vulnerability, God's promises, God's divine nature. So now when he comes into this and says, make every effort to add to your faith, suddenly faith has a huge ring to it, doesn't it? Faith in what? What? In all of this, in all of this, faith in his divine power, faith in his glory, faith in his goodness, not in yourself, because faith isn't just about believing something really hard. If you just believe really hard, you can do it. Just believe in yourself that you can do it. Guess what? That might be believing in something false. Maybe you can't. I know a lot of us were raised on Bear in the big blue house and blue's clues that you can do anything you want to do. And how many of us grew up and discovered that's just a lie? <laughs> I just can't do anything I want to do. But God can. It's his glory, his goodness. That's faith. But if that's not enough, I love the verse that comes after this. So he says, make every effort to add all these things. And if you do this, you will you will be, if you do these in increasing measure, you will not be ineffective, unproductive. But then Peter goes a step further. He says, here's how you do these. Or rather he says, If you're not increasing in measure, if these aren't lined up hand in hand, walking forward, if you find that's not happening, Peter says, here's why it's not happening. And I want you to know, so the answer he's going to give is not because you're not trying hard enough. The answer he gives is not because you don't have enough willpower. The answer he gives is not because you don't want it enough. The answer he gives is something surprising and beautiful and amazing and goes back to why this is a treasure of the Christian fanatic and why it starts with faith. He says, very simply this. Whoever does not have them, them being that list, being that hand in hand, walking together of a character of nobility, whoever does not have a character of nobility is nearsighted and blind. Before we move on, I just have to point out how amusing it is that Peter decides that you can be both nearsighted and blind. That's a little redundant, but I think part of what he's saying is you can only see as far as the nose on your face, so you're effectively blind. All you can see is your own behavior and your own self as you perceive it to be. You're not looking by faith. You're not seeing anything substantive beyond your own nose. He says this, whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Okay, think about that for a moment. To add to your faith, goodness, and all that, if you find that you're ineffective and unproductive, In your knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you find that you're not growing in increasing measure with the character of Christ, that probably would have been a better way to say it than a character of nobility, but too late. If you find that you're not growing with this character of Christ or character of nobility, there is an answer. It isn't to try harder. It's to go back to faith and specifically, says Peter, it's to cling to the faith that you have been cleansed from your past sins. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? It's not because you need to beat yourself up more. It's not because you need to recognize how terrible you are more. It's because you've been forgotten. You've been forgotten. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed of your past sins. Now, there are two ways this can happen. One is that you can forget you ever had any sins and therefore can forget that God cleansed you. And that would be arrogance, right? To say, well, I don't need God. Now you're back to self-control and that's not going to work. But the other that happens, in my experience, at least equally frequently, if not more, among believers, is that you remember that you sin, you sin, but you forgot that you've been cleansed of that. You've forgotten that that's no longer who you are. And if you forget that you've been cleansed of your past sin, either because you arrogantly don't think you need Christ, or because you just don't believe that Christ has cleansed you, that His power is enough. Guess what? You don't have faith in his divine power and goodness. You don't have faith in his very great and precious promises. And the answer, again, is not to beat yourself over the head. It's to get back to that. Make every effort to believe God. That's what the every effort is. That's what it comes back to. Let's look at one more passage, which will just confirm. A passage from Paul, a list from Paul of character. And as we do this, I'm going to teach you a song and you have to sing. So those of you in the worship team, you're going to have to help us out because I know you're bold enough to sing out loud. A nope. <laughs> a lot of you are probably familiar with this passage. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to read the list 1st we They're not going to spend as much time on it, but we're going to read the list first and then we're going to back up and read the context. Paul says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, we're going to actually say patience in the song because it's hard to sing forbearance, so we'll get there. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Forbearance is a good word because it reminds us that what it's really talking about here is not just patience of waiting for something to happen, it's actually patience with other people, which is, let's be honest, much harder. (laughs) It's forbearance, giving other people time to change, to grow, to catch up to your standards, (laughs) right or wrong. The kind of thing you want other people to give you. But he says the fruit of the spirit is these things. This again, isn't this who you want to be? Don't you want people to look at you and go, that person is so loving. That person is joyous. That person is so drama free. I think that's one way to understand peace. (laughs) That person, man, I just know that when I mess up, I feel comfortable that I can go to them and they're going to be patient with me. And that person's just kind. That person is decent. They're good. They're moral. That person is reliable. Trustworthy. That person is just gentle. And there's that self-control again. That person doesn't just do what they want. They aren't controlled by their desires. We want to be that person. We like that person. I want to be surrounded by these people. So we're going to memorize this, and we're going to memorize it with a song. It's a kid's song, which means you can all learn it. (laughs) And it goes like this. I will sing it once, and then you can read the words here. Just remember to sing patience instead of forbearance, or it's going to mess up the whole rhythm, okay? Just hang in there with me. I will not forbear with you if you do this wrong. Okay. Yes, I will. Okay. Here's how the song goes I'll sing it once. You'll pick it up. You'll be singing it in no time. First of all, someone name an actual fruit banana. Okay. Here's how it goes Oh, the fruit of the Spirit's not a banana. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit's not a banana. If you want to be a banana you might as well hear it you can't be a fruit of the spirit because the fruit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control right okay someone name another fruit Plum. plum okay now sing along with me oh the fruit of the spirit's not a plum the fruit of the spirit's not a plum if you want to be a plum, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit, cause the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. An apple. Fruit of the Spirit's not an apple. The fruit of the Spirit's not an apple. If you want to be an apple, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Just the last part. Because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Good. Note. This is fruit. Think about fruit. If I said to you, I want you to make me some apples, you might think I meant cook me some apples. You might think I meant prepare me some apples. But if I said, no, I want you to make me apples, you would say, I can't do that. And I would say, why not? And you would say, because you don't make apples, you plant seeds and you water them and you cultivate them and God makes apples. It's fruit. It would be weird for us to read the fruit of the spirit and think that what Paul is saying to us is, here you go, make these things. No, he's saying there's a seed you got to plant and maybe you need to water it and cultivate it, but these things just come as a result of the cultivation and the planting of the appropriate seeds. Do you want to be loving? Do you want to have joy and peace? Do you want to be more forbearing and more kind and more good? Would you like to be faithful and Gentile? Gentle? (laughs) I wrote Gentile. (laughs) If you want to be Gentile, that's up to a different seed planted at a different time. If you want to be gentle and if you want to have self-control, it doesn't come from controlling the self. Isn't it weird to think of self-control as a fruit? It feels so much like a self-will. You already have an idea from Peter what this really means but let's see what Paul says. He starts out this way. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And this is where you go, that is what I don't want to be, and that is who I don't want to hang out with. Right? That's a miserable company and a miserable person. And Paul says, these are the acts of the flesh. This is not the flesh. But if you only plant to the flesh, if you only sow the seeds of the flesh, these are the acts that will be produced. But he says, but the fruit of the spirit is ready. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you. And I do know it. He says, he says, He says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh and they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And that can feel very defeating. That's like playing chess against yourself, right? If the flesh wants to win and the spirit wants to win and I'm both, that's a problem until you remember you're not both. You're the spirit and the flesh serves you. Now, you may have forgotten that it serves you, which is like forgetting you've been cleansed of your past sins. You may have forgotten that you're not obligated to the desires of the flesh. But the reality is, if you think you're only the flesh, and you live according to the flesh, only fulfilling its desires, you will indeed be in conflict with the Spirit. And this is what he means by you can sow to the Spirit and produce fruit in keeping with that. Or you can sow to the flesh and produce acts in keeping with that. But please don't be confused and think that what Paul's saying is back to self-control. That it's a matter of clamping down on the flesh and producing the spirit. No, that's not what it means. What do you need to do? What is he saying? If, he thinks, if you think what he's saying is that you need to work harder to deny your desires, you haven't read enough of Paul. Because there's actually a passage, several passages, where Paul says, in fact, that if you spend all your time denying your desires, you're sowing to the flesh. Even doing that is to live as if the flesh is who you are. So what does he say? He says this. I love this. But you have to think about this carefully. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But here's what's really important about this verse. Almost immediately, a lot of you switched that in your head and didn't even notice you'd done it. Here's what I mean. He does not say here, don't satisfy the desires of the flesh and you'll be walking in the spirit. Do you see that he does not say that? The exhortation is not, deny the desires of the flesh and you'll be walking in the spirit. In fact, as I pointed out elsewhere, Paul says, if you deny the desires of the flesh, you may very well still be walking in the flesh. It isn't about self-control. It isn't about just stopping. But he says the other is true. And how precious is this idea that if you walk in the spirit, if you sow to the spirit, if you figure out somehow to live life from where life really is in you, he says, then it's just automatic. You won't fulfill the desires of the flesh because you'll be producing Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see how this is the same thing that Peter was saying? That we have a choice in our lives. We can live by faith. We can put all our eggs in the God basket. We can be a fanatic of Christ and say, even my own self-improvement will come as I focus upon Christ and then we will have an increasing measure of the fruits of the spirit to merge the two ideas. Or we can say, I just need to work harder and I need to start from self control and I need to curb the desires of the flesh. And then that will lead me to a place where I can believe God. And we're trying to reverse the order of second Peter. And I'm not telling you it's a bad idea. I'm just telling you, well, I'm telling you it's a really bad idea. But the reason it's a really bad idea is because it's an unworkable idea. It just won't happen. Paul doesn't say stop doing the acts of the flesh and start doing the fruits of the Spirit. You don't do fruit. That's even weirder than trying to make fruit. I do apples. What about you? (laughs) No, no. You walk in the Spirit. You trust God. That's why. This is a treasure of the Christian fanatic because the bottom line is this. Do you want to have a character of nobility? Do you want, to, I won't make you sing it this time. Do you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control to be a fruit of your life? Then the key to that is not to pursue those things. The key to that is to be a fanatic about Jesus. To be devoted to him and let him change you. And let that faith walk hand in hand and lead that goodness. And that goodness can lead that knowledge. And that knowledge can lead that self-control, leading the perseverance, leading the mutual affection, leading love. The seeds of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on is not self-control. The seeds are faith. The seeds are submission to Jesus. The seeds are fanatical devotion to him and only him. And put positively, that means good character is a treasure that comes from being a fanatic, not something you pursue to make yourself worthy of being a fanatic. It's always and all about faith. Please, please, please get this in the right order. Having this treasure does not make you a fanatic. Pursuing this treasure does not make you a fanatic. The treasure comes from pursuing God. The treasure comes from pursuing Christ. You want to know yourself? Self-knowledge comes through growth in our increasing faith in Jesus. That's how you know yourself. Because that's where you are. Like most of the things we pursue in life, happiness, safety, security, confidence, time and time again, reality, experience, and even scientific studies reveal to us that those things rarely come from pursuing them. Self-knowledge comes not through pursuing the thing itself, but through, through pursuing Christ and finding ourselves there. I just want to wrap up with two verses that just kind of may encourage you little side notes here. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork. And I love the the translation I've occasionally seen where handiwork, the word there is masterpiece because it's God's work. It's God's work that he's put time into and effort into. So the idea here, it's like his, his magnum opus, but every one of us is his magnum opus. He says, we are God's handiwork, not our handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look, we were created for good works and good works were created for us and God wants to put us together. And the way that happens is if we submit to God. If we pursue good works, we may end up doing good works we weren't created for and we won't do them very well. Not only that, we'll walk around the good works that are placed right in our path because we're too busy looking for the good work we thought we were gonna do. God creates the works. He creates the masterpiece in you. And what happens with us? We receive the treasure of a character of nobility because we just trusted God. Romans 5, 3-5 through says, not only so, we're going to look at this verse again in a future treasure, but it, it applies here and I want you to see it. He says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There's a lot of words there, but I want you to hear that what he's saying is even our suffering produces character. And the character gives us hope that God will come through. And we're never disappointed in that hope, not because we are working so hard at it, but because God's love has been poured into our hearts. That the Holy Spirit is essentially the vessel of God's love in us. Think about what it means. That as we put our faith in Jesus, as we submit to him, everything that happens in our lives. Whether you believe God causes all things or allows all things doesn't matter for the point I'm going to make. And I'm okay with either. But the, the reality is everything that happens in our lives, God is committed to using to build this character in you. And character isn't an abstract idea that we hate because it's character building. (laughs) Character is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me just close by reading Galatians five thirteen through 23. We broke it up and read it in pieces. I want to read it as a whole now that you kind of have the right mindset as we're reading this. All right. And this will be our benediction. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you divide, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the spirit I won't make you sing it (laughs) is love, joy peace, patience kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control and against such things there is no law go with God most churches believe in the value of small groups but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training and our assessment into the focus groups and we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at PastorMac, M-A-C underscore at Mac.com and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope there's been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.